Hello and welcome to this Nutmeg podcast, a version of the football periodical for your ears. I'm Daniel Gray and my guest this time is Michael Calvin, award-winning journalist and author. Though based in the south-east of England, Mike came north to take part in a Nutmeg Live event in the sun-blessed autumn of 2018. We borrowed a room in the middle of Edinburgh for this one, a warning then that listeners may experience bagpipes on a couple of occasions. Mike was up to discuss his new book, State of Play, Under the Skin of the Modern Game. A cracking read it is too. His other works include Nowhere Men, the unknown story of football's talent spotters, and Living on the Volcano, the secrets of surviving as a football manager. Before we begin, a quick reminder that these podcasts are now fortnightly. Have a listen to what we've done so far. Subscribe, like, spread the word. We are very, very needy. The next paper issue of Nutmeg Magazine, number 10, is out in early December. Please see nutmegmagazine.co.uk for more. But for now, here's that chat with Mike. Q-tape. Mike, tell me how you came to love football. I suppose um, I was entranced, one, uh, by the the smell of liniment in the dressing room that we used to change in as ball boys at Watford Football Club. Uh, and there were men next door. And I always remember the uh, green standard issue tracksuits that we had. It was a bit like Sir Thomas More's um, shirts. You know, they itched and uh, uh, they were a continual um, irritation. But one of of the other guys um, was the manager's son. And... So we were let into this enclosed society a little bit. And being on a touchline, I can remember there was an FA Cup um, match where Watford, who was a, a very small team at the time, uh, beat the first great Bill Shankly Liverpool team 1-0 and actually accelerated the um, breakup of that team. And I just saw this community um, completely entranced and united by the um the experience of winning a football match and i also that was the day i saw my first grown man cry where there was a liverpool fan i can still remember he had one of these old donkey jackets on and long scarves and it was very much old school where the scarf had um button badges all along it so it must have weighed a ton so I saw this you know, grown man weeping that Liverpool had been knocked out of the FA Cup and I thought, wow, this is, this is something else. I want to be part of this. And I suppose that then, I was about 11 at the time, um, you know, made me fertile territory where my dad came home one day. Um, he was a, a, worked for the local electricity board and he scavenged two books from an abandoned house. Um, both in their own way had an impact on my life. The... Uh, first book was a glossary of the 1945 UK Parliament, the campaigning Parliament, NHS. So that informed my political beliefs, I suppose. But the other one, most pertinently for you know our conversation and, and, and the book State of Play, uh, it was um, Arthur Hopcraft, the football man. And uh, this was 71. It was a, an old library book which had been taken out on the 3rd of February 1971. So the fine's going to be something else. Um, and uh, it was, I was entranced by it right from the start. You know, I'd had the schoolboy fantasy of being an astronaut. Then I was going to become a working class warrior in, in um, Westminster as an MP. But the moment I read the, the last two lines of, of Hopcraft's introduction, which was, you know, I am a reporter uh, trying to get to the heart of what football is. That, that got me, you know. I was done then. That was what I wanted to do. It remains an absolute classic, doesn't it? Wonderful. Uh, it's the perfect snapshot of the game in 1968. The style, the pro style, is is just... Um, it mesmerises me, even now. And, you know, you, you see here um, a man, obviously in tune, not just with the sport, but with the human condition. And that was something that really had an influence on me and and I would hope that the books that I've done in football have reflected the game's humanity you know and I'm lucky that people within the game have have read them and um, respected them they know that um, I do shine a light into some pretty 
deep and dark crevasses but they accept that because it's contextualized it's balanced and it's the reality that they know because they're in a brutal game uh it's a people business but it doesn't treat people very well um and so what i try to do is in especially with state of play is looking at the issues through the eyes and experiences of people who, who deal with those issues on a daily basis State of Play is a documentary of a book. It's um, a wonderfully in-depth piece. It's one of those books where I just couldn't go to bed. One more chapter, one more chapter. I really gobbled it up. I can't um, give it enough acclaim, really. But you set yourself some task by trying to follow in Hopcroft's shoes um, of this scope. How did you go about choosing which areas to cover? Uh, I took a very deep breath beforehand, I know that for a start, and as I say in the book, you know, I, I realise that it's very impudent to try and you know, measure myself again, and I hope, you know, the, you know I, didn't want, I didn't set out to actually you know, become this generation's hot craft. No, it's not I, following in the steps of it, it's just no, taking that way. but I looking. was inspired by it, yeah. and, I, and I thought it was, you know, I wanted this book, you know, the introduction for me is quite a personal introduction, as much as I talk about how much I miss my dad, and um, because it was quite an emotional experience writing that introduction because I write, ten, I tend to write at sort of about four, four in the morning and, you know, I live, I live out on the sticks. So it's quiet. You've got this rural stillness, but also you've got, got this darkness, this blackness. And um, it just allows me, it tra- that's transported me back to the kid that I was. And it enabled me to pay homage to my dad for what he did for me, which was everything, but also what Hopcraft did, because Hopcraft set me on a path which has, you know, sent this council house kid from Watford all around the world and, you know, given me, you know, the ultimate privilege of being at some of the greatest sporting occasions you know, of, the, of the last 30 years. So, um, all in all, um, I want this book to try and. Um, almost be a flame carrier for people who deserve greater credit. Um, you know, to, to, to answer the second bit of your question there in terms of how I get, went about it, I tend to think in a strange way that books almost write themselves, that you start off on a path, and I had a very, very clear vision of the first chapter uh, being with Dawn Astor because it's I tend it's the old journalistic maxim isn't it you know get get the joke in the intro and run like hell for the end well it's a, it's a version of that that I, I, my my first chapters I tried to make really powerful so you know living in the volcano we had um, um, Martin Ling you know, electrodes being uh, attached to his head when he was having ECT here um, I just got so much admiration and respect for Dawn Astle, um, Jeff's daughter. She's one of the great heroines of the game. And for her to describe in gut-wrenching detail the last 30 seconds of her father's life was uniquely emotional. It'll never leave me. And, and it's one of those interviews, I don't know if you've ever had them, Daniel, but where you're into, you know, your subject is in tears and your interiors as well. I've had that a few times. You know, when I did, I did a book with um, Gareth Thomas, um, the uh, former British Lions uh, rugby captain, and we spent most of the, most of the research phase in tears on that one. But to have Dawn going through the the very private tragedy of her father choking to death on his own vomit in the front garden in a what was meant to be a pick me up celebratory family Saturday um, required great moral courage on her part but that's I think indicative of the of the way that she's dealt with um, the issue and also put her own personal grief into a much broader context um, you know she talks about um, Gordon Taylor the um, chief executive of the PFA um, Telling her, well, you know, my um, my mother had dementia and she never headed the football, which was gross and egregious, just staggering, unbelievable. And um, to feel to be in the force field of her anger and to feel 
her hurt, um, it made me. It made me want to do a good job for her. And I, the last thing I said to her, we, we had a full day, and I've obviously been in touch with her a lot since. But I said, look, I'm going to do your dad justice. And I suppose for for listeners um, who might know not not that much about Jeff Astle, in a way, he he's the representative of, of Hotcraft's generation. In 1968, when uh, Football Man came out, he was he scored the winning goal in the FA Cup final. Um, he was the quintessential local hero. He lived um, in a club semi-detached, um, used an old goalpost to hold his um, washing line up in the back garden. But there was he was hot-wired, or his his football ability was hot-wired into the football community. You know, he was just known simply as the king. And his death in 2002 was a, a real... There was a you know, it was a huge outpouring of of relief uh, sorry of, of of grief and solidarity because here they here they had a man uh, according to the coroner who died from an industrial disease at the age of fifty nine. Um, that by that he meant heading a football. Um, the neuropathologist uh, Dr. Willie Stewart of Stirling University who. Uh, did the postmortem on the brain? Said it was one of a ninety-year-old, and um, I think the most poignant. There were two really poignant moments. The first was just when I literally sat down. I sat down. It was it was in Jeff's um, favourite chair in a low low ceiling lounge, and I'm looking across the room, and there's a huge photograph, blown-up photograph of him having scored that winning goal at Wembley. And you can feel, you can feel his sense, you can feel his presence in the, in, in the room. He's every, it's, a, it's a shrine to him. But then later on, I'm, I'm, I moved and I sat next to Dawn on the, um, there's like a sort of three-seater settee. And she passed me over what was, what looks like a sort of a school exercise book, sort of plastic backed, you know, that transparent thing that we all had as kids at school. And there were, uh, you know, around 400 names in there, and she'd annotated very carefully underneath each of them, you know, maybe one, you know, one paragraph thumbnail sketch. Those 400 names were of footballers who'd either died from dementia or were in terminal stage of it. And the irony of it all, the, the cruel irony of it, is that these guys, be they exalted or be they journeyman pros what we call journeyman pros at smaller clubs they all meant something to someone in the football community and they died not knowing they were footballers and I found that really difficult to take and there was a degree of anger in 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 my writing there I I try and temper it and I, I always want the 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 reader to make up his or her mind but um it did make me angry because there were echoes of Hillsborough. It took Dawn 14 years to push the Football Association and the PFA. Who fight, you know, let's, and let's get it right, the PFA should be looking after the interests of the players. And I think they've failed. It's been dereliction of duty in the, on their part. So it took that long for them to have meaningful research overseen by um, Dr Stewart. And... Um, she was dismissed. The family were dismissed. The FA sent two um, letters to the family in the immediate aftermath of Jeff's death. The first was from the lawyers, warning them about the possible consequences of legal action. And the second one was an offer. And I don't really want to dignify it with the word offer, but it was for two tickets for an England international. One designated for her mother, Lorraine, and one to be shared out between the three sisters. I don't know what planet people are on when they do things like that. It's just the it was contempt, and it was the old school football administrator's mixture of ignorance and arrogance. Now, if I can highlight that within the book like this, I hope I've done my job. You certainly have. It's the most poignant. Doesn't even do it justice. I was in tears in a Wagamama in Gatwick Airport, which is probably <laughs> never a good look. <laughs> Having had the goosebumps of the introduction about your father and, and, and things, the anger and the tears that come in that first chapter, 
why are or why have the footballing authorities been so afraid to admit this link between heading a ball and Alzheimer's? The cynic in me says that they're looking at North America and they're looking at the NFL and they're looking at the class action suit there, um, whatever it was, 800 million. And they're thinking, this could be us. This could be our PPI. Um, to be fair to Gordon Taylor, and it's not something I, I tend to do very often, but uh, you know, he did say the PFA have led calls for boys under 10 to be prevented from heading a ball. And, and that's something probably I would support you know as a father myself um but it is interesting you look at the states and they are um you know they ban kids under 14 from heading balls interesting the guy who proposed that had death threats because and i quote you're you're threatening our next generation of messes well i don't know about you daniel but i've never seen you know um um uh, messy leap through the air yeah like sort of so, like a salmon with yeah. a big old a big old Duncan Ferguson header at the back post you know that doesn't happen so um uh, it, we do it's really weird uh, I think also there is a there is a as I say there is an ignorance and arrogance uh, that tend to be around f- not just football administrators but sports administrators I actually you know I worked in the system the Olympic system for three years uh, I helped set up the English Institute of Sport um, and that was with Steve Cram, and uh, we oversaw 38 Olympic sports. And the people that I dealt with at the head of those sports were uniformly mediocre, and their their great talent was uh, born of too many hours in too many tedious committee room meetings, and that is basically to protect their backside. And uh, the hypocrisy that that brings is is quite mind-blowing when you see it up, up close which i have done i think there's another chapter in the book um where which basically charts it's called uh, cracking the code and this charts the uh, funny enough it's, it's another 14 year odyssey strange how that sort of time span came up again but this guy called simon um, andrews who has been very aware as a former Manchester United trainee, he uh, became successful, very successful in wealth management. But he saw um, a huge gap in football's provision for young players. So set up something. Eventually, set up something called the um, Players Trust. But it's taken them fourteen years to get to the point which they're at now, where. Uh, they've been speaking at a high level to the FA with Chief Isaac and a guy called Andy Ambler, who's their head of professional game relations, just trying to get the football authorities to accept the need, which is patently obvious, for young players, parents, even coaches at clubs, who know that they can't protest to a club because they will be, uh, it will, it will be uh, to their detrimental to them. Coaches won't say anything about what's going on in their football clubs because they'll lose their jobs. So there has to be an independent, confidential counselling type service, and it's basically on a plate for the FA and the football and, and the Premier League and um, the English Football League. And it's peanuts in, in big term picture. It's a million pounds. Uh, it will do immense good. Um, I've seen them work now. The FA, to their great credit, are trying to push this through, but they're coming up against the indifference of the Premier League and the PFA, who are saying, "Well, we do this." Well, they don't. You know, they might say they do, but they don't. And that's what really infuriates me about football um, at the highest level. It's just it just lacks humanity, and it just lacks common decency. Mike, to me, one of the great themes in the book is football's great people who utilise the power of football. You've talked about one in Jeff Astle's daughter, mm. Dawn, against the people that actually have power. Mm. And it's not that you set them against each other, you're just covering everything in a fair, journalistic way. But is that a fair reading of the book? There are these heroes in there, mm. almost every other chapter, and then... There are the men in suits who are either 
stopping change or bringing about change that many of us that go to games don't really want to see. Uh, yeah, forgive the crudity, but I suppose you can sum it up. Great game, shit industry. Um, and I suppose the great privilege of doing a book is that it enables me to highlight the unheralded. You know, the guys who, um, you know, even just in a couple of paragraphs, Clasford Sterling, a guy that has worked for 38 years, uh, in um, very straightened circumstances, bringing um, kids into professional football out of um, Broadwater Farm Estate in Tottenham. Um, people like Tajian Hutton, who at a time you know, of political austerity where youth budgets are being slashed, he is working with gang members through the almost the prism of of, of football and can be a scary place because, you know, as he says in the book, um, in essence, he's created what's called a, a corner league. And um, the corner league is of from various estates, which are obviously then gang related. And the rule is no weapons, leave them at home. Um, but that doesn't stop 10, 10 v 10 brawls. And he has to stand up in the middle of that and, and, He's 25 years old. But here is someone who's working, um, and, and, and you know the irony of it for me was that he's literally, but literally in the shadow of Wembley. He's, he's, he's got a, a, an office um, basically for free in a block that's just about to be knocked down. Um, now, here's someone who's doing so much good for his community and working out of the local barbers or the local um, corner shop and running programs like that. Now, you know, there's no sort of social uh, responsibility anymore, it seems to me, politically. And, you know, so guys like these are cutting at slack. And the FA and the Premier League have these grandiose um, CSR schemes. You know, they, they can show you a wonderful whiz-bang website with all the case studies. Clubs are increasingly almost commercialising goodwill... So if a journalist wants to do an interview, Manchester City are notorious for it, where if you interview a player, it has to be, you know, it was at the city, you know, the city's ends, open day or whatever it would be. And I, I just thought, here was a guy who has done more good than most of the people in the FA Council will ever do in their lifetime. And it was his response. He wasn't a bitter man. He's only 25, for goodness sake. He wasn't a bitter man, but when uh, his father was an activist as well, and um, it was, funny enough, quite similar to um, Jeff Astle's funeral, where the cortege was borne through the streets and people you know, were there in numbers and showed their respect, in Jeff Astle's case, to the degree that they were touching the coffin as it went into the to church. And um, about four months after... Um, Tajian's father's death, uh, the family received a letter of condolence from the then FA uh, chairman, Greg Dyke. And as I said, you know, Tajian's not a bitter, bitter young man, but he was outraged by that, by the tokenism involved. And he basically said, well, look, he didn't want to know my dad when he was alive. He didn't know, he doesn't want to know what I do. And yet we have this letter on a headed notepaper. You know, what's he trying to prove? And I, so I think you know, I'm, I've always been, I've always been attracted to sort of dreamers and outcasts. And um, I, I love people who are willing to give everything of themselves without benefit to themselves. So um, you know, you look at. Um, uh, you know, go, going back to what we were talking about with the Players' Trust, Simon Andrews has put half a million pounds of his own money into that quest to get an independent counselling service for, for kids and parents. As he said, because the, 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 the sort of you know, reflex action in football is, well, what's in it for you? You're trying to make money out of this, aren't you? He said, look, if I was going to make money out of this, I'd have become an agent. I don't need this. But I believe in it. So, I, again, I want to try and empower these guys, hopefully through my words, so that people can see 
outside the system there are some really fantastic people doing great work um and sometimes you can do it within the system you, in the same chapter as Tajane you've got um the kick it out guys Troy Townsend and Herman Oosley and they provide uh, Herman has been I've known Herman a long time and you know he was brought up um first went to football with Millwall at a time where uh, those around him um, wore knuckle dusters um, and there was blood and glass on the terracing. But he was in, the, in an environment where, as a black man, um, he had to stand by when fans were monkey chanting and um, turning to one another and, you know, the, talking about niggers. And, and, and it was just... It was, a, it was a horrendous thing that drove him away from the game for a while. But he's back and he's a, he's a hugely positive force. And kick it out, I've been around for 25 years. And again, they do more work in, at community level than the clubs which have infinitely more money and resources. And I, I find that, you know, I'm not very popular in the Premier League probably because I'm pointing these things out, but... There are some good people at clubs doing, you know, I worked with a guy called Adrian Hurst at Stoke and they do some fantastic work. But it's, I don't think the bigger clubs are close enough to the communities to actually make the connection that can be made. So to give another example from the book, um, one of the fun chapters I had doing was called Dreamers. And there were three clubs. One was one was run by a mate of mine, or owned by a mate of mine. He phoned me um, um, last March, uh, May and said look I think I need my head tested I bought a club uh, I've got no players I've got no ground and um, uh, I've got no fans uh, and I, but I've got a manager but I'm just about to sack the manager uh, so I went to see him it was a year town and you know here's someone he's put about 30,000 or something into into this club and it's just it's, it was fun Similarly, there was another club called Dunstable Town where they literally had no money, no but zero budget, in a league where it was run by Hereford, the Phoenix Club, and they were they had a budget of ten thousand pounds a week. The, the The manager was on seventy grand a year. These guys were heroes. They they had one um, sort of commercial advantage all year. They were given fifteen pound vouchers to spend at Amazon at Christmas. And the third, and, and the third club, and which is much more pertinent to what we talked about um, at the start of this question, is Accrington Stanley, where uh, I see it through the eyes of um, the owner, Andy Holt, um, local boy, was a Burnley fan in his youth at the local estate, um, built up a business with plastic boxes, made a few quid, and. What he came into, he didn't want to go into a football club, but he did so at Accrington. One, because it was going to go bankrupt. But two, because he saw it very clearly as something symbolic within that community. And so if you look at Accrington, small town, 35,000 people, economically challenged, the the high streets are war zone. It's just charity shops now. Um but of that 35,000, Andy thinks between 10 and 15,000 of the inhabitants are touched by the football club, be it um, uh, the, you know, the, the, the programs they run for autistic kids or lads and dads sessions or literary sessions or uh, you know, sessions for long-term unemployed. And what that was was a small town and the, the, there was this sort of umbilical cord between the football club and the small town. It served and represented. And I, I found that great to behold. And there was something really karmic about the night they got promoted, which is what I write about in the start of the chapter, where um, Andy, the owner, and John Coleman, the manager, um, basically helped Billy Key, their, their striker, through severe mental health problems. He, he basically... Came to them at the start of the season. What is it called? Depression, the rat in my head that won't go away, or a yeah, the rat, the rat in my head that won't go away. Dark phrase like that. Yeah, and um, but that on that night, Billy scored the goals, 
they uh, went up and you know the place went nuts and it was lovely to watch because um it's it's you know it's, it's a pretty unprepossessing ground but there were the, the i suppose the main stands eight ten rows deep and he was sitting at the back about five minutes after the final whistle having a pint with his mate and you know around in those carnage people were jumping around and dancing and everything else and uh, this man forced his way through the scrum and went and went in right in front of him. It's about forty, probably. And he just said, "Andy, Andy, thank you." And he couldn't say any more. He, he just dissolved into tears, and it was as if he was embarrassed by the audacity of his own emotion. And he sort of drifted back into the shadows. And I just thought then, that means something. You know that that is a that is something that maybe when that particular forty-year-old guy is you know, in his dotage or even on his deathbed, he might be saying to himself, thinking to himself, that was one of the great nights of my life. Now, that's why I love football. To go right back to the start of this, that's why I love football, because it means something. The chapter comes at a really important part of the book for me because we've just learned about the Pozzo mm. era at Watford, the mm. owners now. Watford was your team growing up, though you say in the book you've sort of fallen apart a bit. Mm. What we have in the Accrington-Stanley chapter is the sense of belonging, the connection between town and team, particularly in a post-industrial area, something I very much relate to and care about. Mm. But I found such sadness in the Pozzo chapter. The, the Watford are run by a family who have put money in. They're very safe, you know, soundly run. They've built the fourth stand. It's a vibrant football club doing well again this season. But there's something about the model. Managers will only last two years at the most because they either won't be good enough or they'll be poached. Sleeper players that may never play for the club. Mm. An abandonment, really, of local talent. Mm. A disconnection. It's the complete opposite to me of what Graham Taylor, who you worked with as a young journalist, bred in the town when he got Watford together. Mm. That must have been hard for you because that club's still in your heart somewhere. It, it is. It's been driven out of my heart to a degree. Um you know, there was, there was the, the sort of Damascene moment for me, probably with Watford, and I'm not desperately popular because of it. Was that, you know, I probably admitted to football's cardinal sin that I'd swapped allegiances. And um, I only went with my heart, and I was sitting in, funny enough, in the Watford director's box uh, with, with the Millwall directors. You know, for, for those who didn't know, I, I was spent a year embedded in Millwall mm. for a book called Family yeah, where uh, I was basically you know in the dressing room all the time on the bench you know basically completely insinuating myself into every area of the club and I got to love the club as an institution misunderstood some fantastic people again doing really good work unheralded uh, in, in things like gun crime in uh, knife crime uh, in, in, in really you know, challenging circumstances uh, you know I really really blue-collar football club. And it just basically, it, it almost had retained the values that I think that my original club, Watford, had lost. And that night, Graham Taylor was 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 our host and uh, the club was run by this charlatan who um, had changed his name when he became, when he was bankrupt. He subsequently, after leaving Watford, became bankrupt again. Um and I sensed Graham's great unease and almost embarrassment by you know, be, being almost the figurehead of, of something that he felt had been distorted. Um, and Watford beat Millwall that night 2-1 and I was devastated because I really wanted Millwall to win. And funny enough, I was in throughout the game... I was in constant contact with Neil Harris, who's the, the manager there now. And Neil was with the supporters behind in, in the away end because he was injured and he wasn't playing. And um, that, so that was it. And, and I, I thought very long and hard about writing, you know, being honest enough to say, look, that's what I felt. And I got a lot of stick for it, but I still stand by it. So anyway, you know, cutting to the chase of state of play, I, I wanted to go back to the club 
Uh, and fair fair play to Scott Duxtry, the chief executive. Great access, as usual for you, but but they were very open with you. Well, and, and they're not hiding the system they're playing. No, it's, no, it's and, all there. And and just, basically, he was challenging. You know, you know, you know, basically, he was saying romance is dead, which frankly probably is, but I don't like it. Um, and so, and, and he knew that I was sceptical of the system. I think it's a brilliant business model, and I found Gino Pozzo very very sort of. Very strange in terms of his work pattern is, you know, you go in and I had about 90 minutes with Scott uh, at the training ground and uh, we'd had a preparatory lunch and, you know, sorted it all out. And and I was very open about what I thought about the model. And again, what I try and do in my books is I, I basically allow people to speak for themselves. So therefore, then it's up to the reader what what judgment call they make on them. Um, and you know sometimes you can you, you allow people to talk a little bit too much, which is probably one of the stocks in trade, isn't it? But um, Gino Pozzo is, sta- is sitting uh, in a on a round table on the right hand edge of the dining room at the training ground. Suit, jacket over the back of a plastic chair, laptop, phones, doing his work in a you know, completely incongruous environment. You know, this guy should be sitting around a mahogany table in a boardroom somewhere. And I, I asked around about him and people who knew him, and they said, well, look, one guy in particular, Chief Ezeka of another Premier League club, he said, well, look, if you've got a shitload of money, which is what these guys have got anyway, and you love football and you love the chicanery and you love the sort of mental challenge of the pr- transfer market, what better way to make a living? But also... He knows he's on a, an absolute gold mine because it was only recently, in the last couple of weeks, he's turned down 150 million, I think it was, from memory, um, for a third of a share of the team, of the club. So he's, he's sitting on something worth half a billion pounds, which he's got for relative peanuts. Um, that is where football has changed beyond recognition. And I think it's irreversible change where you've got people now who can go in and make absolute obscene amounts of money. So you look at Stan Kroenke. He's basically annexed Arsenal, a club of fantastic tradition. He owns it now. It's his little, it's his puppy now, and he can do what he wants. And you look at what he's done in the States in terms of the fran- you know, moving franchises around. He's loathed, doesn't care. So now he's in a situation where he's got complete control of Arsenal Football Club. Usmanov has sat on 30% of the shares. He made a huge amount of money by selling to Kroenke. Let's look at the Glazers. The Glazers are an essentially parasitic presence who have made billions out of a debt-leveraged buyout of a brand which didn't understand itself. And the modern Manchester United, we're now seeing in all its, um, I was going to say glory, but I probably wouldn't I associate that word with that club anymore. But, you know, you've got the chief executive who wields the power because of the, because of the share price. There are rec- it's at record levels. You have the star player, Pogba, who is not, has not been employed for his ability as a World Cup winning midfield player, but for his ability as a human emoji, someone whose social media penetration uh, is hailed in their annual report, when Manchester United actually talk about their home as the Cayman Islands, which is, you know, again, the ultimate obscenity. And that's why in the book I've tried to, and there's a chapter called Footsteps where I've used Stephen Gerrard and uh, Paul McGuinness to actually look at the whole idea of a club and the traditions that it represents. So, you know, for Manchester United purposes, you know, Paul, his dad was a Wilf, Busby's successor. Um, he'd been at the club since he was four years old. Again, funny enough, like me, the ball boy, smelling the liniment, that's the first, one of the first um, memories he has of football. Um, they had apparently a, f- a special five-spice um or five oil liniment, the wintergreen and menthol and mm. one of the eucalyptus and whatever, which he really recognised. Now, here's a kid 
as a four-year-old, he used to play on Sir Matt Busby's um, um, chair, office chair. It was Uncle Bobby Charlton, Uncle Duncan Edwards. Um, you know, his dad would have been on that plane, but he was injured in the reserve game on the Saturday beforehand. So here's someone who's... In, and he, he spent 25 years at the club and he was imbued with the traditions of the club. But those traditions were best expressed and enforced by Sir Alex Ferguson. And it was he... Uh, Paul McGuinness talk, talks of Sir Alex as a cultural art, architect. In other words, he understood what that club should represent. You know, youth, pace, adventure in the teams but a bit of quality off it. Uh, but also it was a family, an extended family where um, the, the youth team goalkeeper or you know, the, the kid in the academy was as important as the first team player in the overall sort of culture that he was creating. And that was, um, you know, Paul tells a story that he got shouted into the dressing room three games into the season, the inaugural Premier League season, when Man United actually won the league, but at that stage they were bottom of the Premier League. Five minutes after the game, literally, and um, Sir Alex wanted to speak to a 16-year-old goalkeeper who'd been kicked in the face that morning. He'd just heard of it. His career was in doubt. It was a very severe injury, and the kid was in hospital. And so five minutes after... a first-team game, he's on the phone to the hospital to talk to the kid and his parents. That's what being a manager is all about. That's what being, you know, this sort of cultural custodian is all about. And I've got huge respect for for Sir Alex. And, you know, it is interesting, you know, that obviously uh, you know, his, his influence you know, up in Scotland is still huge. And it is, it is well, the, the influence is global to a degree. But here's someone who is unashamedly old school, but frankly... He's being missed more than ever, mm. and I think that's 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 you know because I think modern football. I think we're in a stage now where it's going to become expansionist. It's become even more elitist, even more cynical, even more commercially driven, and then that basically throws up opens up a whole nother can of worms. And moving on to Scotland for the last few minutes, mm. much of what you write about is the very top of the game, mm. and in fact, it's it's not quite recognisable to Accrington and others. But it's also not quite recognisable in much of the Scottish game, OK? Mm. Celtic and Rangers are yeah. very, very big clubs. Yeah. Do you think we celebrate that enough here? Or do we spend our time in Scotland, and I speak as an Englishman, <laughs> um, um, trying to catch up with the Premier League, defining ourselves against something instead of what we are? I think there is a really good point there, yeah. I think probably you do. There, you know, the, I have to say my, my, my knowledge of, of Scottish football... Um, you know, it's not as broad as it should be. But there's a, again, there's a wonderful romanticism of some of those names that are, mm. you know, in the sort of the second divisions. And where I'm, when I'm thinking, well, you know, I've never been to Wraith Rovers, or, you know, I wouldn't mind going I'll, I'll there. take or you Stran, to all these places. Stran Ra. Cancel your like... foreign summer holiday and I'll take <laughs> you to the Costa del Fife because Central Park must be seen. Um, um, yeah. But, it, but I think that's the, the and, and you're very true, is that, look, you know, it's, don't, if it's it's a bit like you know the guy who's got a, a wonderful um, family saloon, looking down the street at someone who's got a Rolls Royce and saying, "I I measure myself by the Rolls Royce." Well, actually, you don't need the Rolls Royce. Concentrate on what you've got and the benefits of what you've got, and and also I think, you know, I, 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 Scottish football is not going to be immune from the reckoning that's coming. Now. You know, I've been speaking to people, you know, coincidentally, even this week, in, in pe- people in pretty who should know what's going on. And there is there is a thought that the Celtic Rangers move into a Premier League is not dead. And um, the way it works is this. Now, in the book, I spoke to. Um, uh, Pep Scura spent some time with him. He's the most powerful guy at, at Barcelona. He was talking about them and Real Madrid basically winning Champions League games on Saturday now because it's, they'll make much more money out of that marketing-wise, TV-wise, than playing Leganes on a Saturday or whatever. 
FIFA are making the move from being a supposedly independent arbitrator of the game to being a commercially interested promoter of the game, i.e. this Club World Cup that Infantino is trying to get through, £25 billion. So they're trying to undercut the, the Champions League. So the Premier League, which, by the way, has never, ever been known as the English Premier League, are now, I think, in the process of beginning to look at contingency plans or a plan B whereby... Celtic, Rangers, Paris Saint-Germain, Ajax, maybe a couple of even Italian clubs that would come in to form almost like a pan-European Premier League. Um, so, you know, these things these things are all happening you know, behind smoke and mirrors at the moment. You know, my other thought is that there is an inevitability that one day there will be a global, pan-global league where clubs themselves don't even have to have a home. You know, they will have a home game. So, you, you know, Manchester United go into this global world and they might have a 16-game season and they might have eight games at Old Trafford. And, and in fact, we saw last night Barcelona announcing they'll play Girona in America. Girona, a third owned by City. Pep Guardiola's brothers. Uh, it's all... Wheels within wheels. that very clear. Wheels, wheels within wheels. But what this book also does is it retains my faith in football. Mm. Do you still have yours? I do, yes, because I, I've got an intrinsic faith in people. Um, and for me, it's the, my, the attraction of football has always been, it's almost twofold. There's an emotional attachment to the game, you know, the, the beauty and lyricism of the game sometimes you can see, but also the, the terrible cruelty of the game. So there's the emotional reaction, but also... I suppose it's something I've I've grown up with and lived with uh, and lived through, I suppose. The way you know, the game has, has changed hugely in the... You know, I was really lucky. I did my first World Cup when I was 22, 23 in 1982. And I tell you how things have changed so much there. We got a lift to the hotel in the England team bus. You know, mad stuff. Um, Although you could see Southgate maybe doing that again. Well, uh, I, th- I think he would like to in a, in a perfect world. Yeah, but Gareth's a really good example of the way that uh, as someone, again, I saw him grow up as a player, wanted to be a journalist. Because I remember when he was at Pistol Palace, he used to say to me, you know, how do you, you know, I saw that piece, what did you, why did you write it that way, and all that sort of stuff. Um, went through the system, you know, good, good youth coach, good development coach understood young people but what he did in the World Cup with England was I thought magnificent in terms of he, he had the courage to say to people uh, or players themselves look be yourselves be natural and he was talking about young players who are at the higher ends are in a really contradictory position they're at one stage they are um, completely isolated from the real world because Walls are built around them by PRs or agents or clubs or sponsors. At the other time, they're completely overexposed because of social media and everything else. And, you know, in the book, there's there's the England under-21 international who has all the bling, he has all the money, he's got all the social media profile, cries himself to sleep at night because of the insecurity of it all. So uh, I think it's right to highlight that sort of stuff, but I also... I suppose we all need some reminders sometimes of um, why we fell in love with football. And and you're right, Daniel, I'm probably remiss that I should have actually, you know, done a bit of a pilgrimage up here and had a look because I'm, I've always been, as I say, it's the, it's the sort of classified, what I call the classified results syndrome. Mm. You know, you think, oh, I wonder what that one's like. Yeah, you I know. think Jonathan Meads called them um, pools coupon towns because in England we only ever heard them in the results yeah. and, and it's often yeah. the only thing people know about the towns. But what also strikes me uh, is that the clubs here, that, you know, there is an intensity, that, that bond, the emotional bond between the fan and, and the club is still retained and there's an intensity to it. You know, one of my best friends in journalism, journalism Johnny Northcroft, is a huge Aberdeen fan. And, um, uh, you know, there's a, a John Mullin at the, at the Telegraph, a huge Morton fan. And, you know, these clubs which, um, you know, you don't have to have 
a hundred thousand pound a week player or a nice comfy seat to actually enjoy what football is and i think what will happen you know and i'm you know obviously in the book i'm, I'm tend to look at england but i think the same thing probably will happen in scotland as the game becomes more distant from its roots i think people will gravitate towards the smaller clubs that intimacy that is obviously lacking elsewhere so that okay let's say the premier league breaks up and you've got the global league and then you've got this sort of premier league underneath with maybe celtic and rangers and psg and you know whoever underneath that so that then the people of the power brokers don't give a damn about what's happening in the football league they don't give a damn what's happening in the scottish premiership or below but because those those um, those smaller clubs, you know, well, blimey, you know, I'm talking about Scotland and Hearts, Hibs, Aberdeen. You know, they're not small clubs, by the way. They're you know, they're big institutions. Um, the smaller clubs will, I think, I think people will gravitate towards them. One because there's a sense of identification with the with the player, and you know, maybe they will go back to a, you know, not quite to the innocence of Hopcraft where you know Hopcraft talks about Stanley Matthews being able to train on the beach at Blackpool and no one bothering him well that, that's never going to happen but the smaller clubs themselves I think um, have <clears throat> excuse me have greater attraction than they probably realise and you know I get your point very much that clubs in Scotland don't realise what their I'm going to use a terrible marketing phrase here. They don't realise what their USP is. Their unique unique selling point is that they matter to people. I think that's a beautiful place to end, and I look forward to you joining me for a romantic weekend at (laughs) Capilau. Thank you, mate. Eat your heart out, Tinder. (laughs) 